So everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. As usual, today we will be answering questions about meditation and Buddhism. As usual, our first 15 minutes will be silent meditation. It's an opportunity for people who have questions to ask them for our volunteers to gather the questions. And at 15 minutes after the hour, I will begin to answer them. So we have 15 minutes of meditation starting now.
Okay. Fifteen minutes is up. We'll now move on to answering questions. So if you have questions still, you're welcome to, again, post them in chat whenever. If you don't have questions, once you've asked your question, just go back to being mindful together. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. There is a lot of stress, restlessness, and distraction during the practice in the evening, and rather than always noting it and continuing to practice, I may stand up and fulfill the craving before the bell rings at the end of the session. What should I do? Right, so one skillful means of dealing with hard to deal with experiences is changing postures. So standing up is fine, though um, lying down is probably more skillful as lying down is considered to be supportive of, of uh, tranquility and concentration. So you can continue the session by lying down, but in certain cases you might continue the session by standing up, but try to continue the session. So if you find yourself standing up, wanting to stand, note, note the desire, wanting, wanting. And then if you stand up, say standing, standing. And then just do standing meditation for a bit. Though again, I recommend instead of standing up, lying down, lying, lying, and then rising, falling in the lying posture. While doing walking and sitting sessions, at what point should one decide to stop the formal practice of walking or sitting? So it's recommended that you set a timer and try to do walking first and then sitting and practice equal amounts. So set the timer for 15 minutes, do 15 minutes of walking, then set the timer again for 15 minutes and do 15 minutes of sitting. And it's recommended that you follow the timer. So whatever amount you make a determination to sit for, that you or walk and sit for, that you walk and sit for that amounts. The practice of um, fulfilling your fulfilling your your determination is cultivating what we call aditana parami, the the perfection of determination. So saying you're going to do something and then actually fulf uh, fulfilling it. When you say I'm going to sit for. 15 minutes and then you do it, it's uh, determination. It's also, I guess, satya, when you do what you say you're going to do. So there's, it, it's, if you, if you intend to sit for a certain amount and then you stop early, you're going against your intention, you're going against your determination, so it gets harder psychologically to stick with things. When I note the rising and falling of the abdomen, it's impossible to finish the word before something new happens, like hearing or thinking. Do you have advice? You know, distracted. That sounds like the mind is dis easily distracted by other things. You know, distracted, distracted. You might try not noting everything in the beginning until you get a little bit better at it and slowly, slowly starting to juggle more things. But don't be discouraged by having to note something else. There's nothing intrinsically special about the rising and falling. If other things are distracting, you can note them as well. But if again, if there's many things, just note distracted, distracted. I'm feeling trapped. I feel no drive to work, to spend day after day earning a living. 
Embracing Buddhism seems the right direction, but not practical in my circumstance. What do I need to do? Buddhism not practical? How can that be? Well, it may be that you have to adapt your understanding of what Buddha embracing Buddhism means. Embracing Buddhism means keeping the five precepts. So that would be the first step. Make sure you're keeping the five precepts, which can be hard. The fourth precept means no lying. So for some people, that's an issue. I mean, it's a challenge, but there you go. There's a challenge for you. Certainly that doesn't have anything to do with working or spending day after day earning a living. The other thing that Buddhism should support you in is your ability to be patient with things that are unsatisfying. So in the in early stages of spiritual life, it can seem like your mundane existence is a hindrance to your practice. And as a result becomes a source of aversion and and you you go with that aversion under the narrative that somehow that aversion is is right it's right to hate things that are not spiritual it's right to hate things that are meaningless and so on but of course disliking something is never wholesome it's never good it's never spiritually fulfilling so in fact buddhism the the practice of buddhism should allow you to be more at peace with things that are unfulfilling, unsatisfying, and be more patient with them. You should be able, you should find through Buddhism that you're able, in fact, to spend day after day earning a living without, with less stress, less dissatisfaction. You may find that you're naturally inclined to less ambition, and so you don't go out of your way to earn more money or to earn money really beyond what is necessary, but practically speaking it should support your ability to work the the mistake is thinking that you somehow need a drive to work in order to work it's this idea that your work has to be fulfilling or satisfying it really doesn't you should find fulfillment in your experience of things rather than in the things themselves meaning if you're mindful if your mind is clear if your mind is at peace it really shouldn't matter what you do whether people have you uh, or whether you have to spend your day lifting hard, heavy objects or or what have you. You might find yourself changing your job so that it's less um, less dependent on things like ambition, uh, defilement, unwholesomeness, attachment, and even less dependent on mental activity. So you might find yourself doing something a little more menial that so that it gives you more time spiritually to yourself. But um overall practically it shouldn't it generally shouldn't interfere the way that it often does and it does simply because of people's of your, your perception of worldly things as bad and and of them as bad because you don't want to do them but not wanting is is just something you have to overcome and let go of When your attention is focused on the abdomen, is it correct at the same time to be aware of the whole feeling of the body sitting in the background constantly? It's not possible to be aware of two things at once. The idea of being aware of two things at once isn't even a logical possibility. What would it even mean if you think about it rationally? There's no it makes no sense to be aware of two things. What what is what what is what would an experience be of being aware of two things at once? That's not even, um, and it's not even logical. What, what, what it it comes from a sense of self. We have this idea of being a self that is possible of such impossible acts, such as being aware of two things at once. Right? If you're if you're something other than your if you are something other than your awareness, then sure you could have two awarenesses somehow. But reality isn't at all like that. Awareness is a thing that takes an object, and it has to take a single object. Otherwise, you know, how do you call it awareness? What sense is something aware if it has two things that it's aware of? Right. Anyway, regardless of logic or, or, or illogic, it is illogical, but it's also not the state of things. So if you find yourself being aware of multiple things in quick succession, which is what is 
happening, then you can note distracted, for example. Uh, but you can, all, as I said, you can also make do with being mostly aware with something, and whatever you're mostly aware of, you can note that, and not actually note every single thing that you're aware of. How does one know if they are practicing correctly? You know by the quality of your your awareness. You don't know by the results. This is important because results are um, are mixed. Results are always going to be mixed with the results of not practicing. So suppose, as an example, you are practicing two hours out of a day and the rest of the day you're doing things that are not very mindful. And then a week later you wonder, hmm, what has these two hours of practice done for me? It can be hard to appreciate the effects of the practice because there are still going to be cycles that are unrelated to the practice. Maybe you start to get a little bit depressed or angry or, 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 or greedy or lustful or something, and you think, hey, maybe that's a result of the practice even, or, boy, this practice is, is not having the results I thought. I mean, even more, you can often think, oh, I just did an hour of practice. How am I feeling now? And then you find that there's something else, some some emotion coming up that can be totally unrelated to the practice. Meaning it's hard, at least over the short term, to appreciate the benefits of the practice. What you you can eventually notice that your personality changes, of course. Through the practice of regular meditation, eventually you start to see that your your personality generally changes. But looking at results is so fraught with with difficulty, especially not only because it's mixed, but also because it's you looking at it. Other people might be able to see a change in you far before, uh, far easier, far more easily than you are, because of course it's you look, trying to look at yourself, which is for everyone a challenge. So much more reliable is appreciating the quality of the state of mind of practicing, meaning when you're mindful, how is your, what is your mind state like? When you are clearly observing an object, seeing it arise and cease, not getting attached to it, learning to face your experiences. What is that experience like? And you should find that in general that experience is more clear, more peaceful, more at ease, more objective. And you'll see all these wholesome qualities arising. You'll see yourself avoiding getting angry. You'll see yourself avoiding getting attached. You'll see yourself uh, less confused more uh, able to discern what right from wrong, uh, useful from useless, etc. So really try to appreciate the greatness of mindfulness for itself. Kind of like that saying, be good for goodness sake, but more just um, be good because of how good it, how good it feels, you know, how, 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 it's, how right it is you can experience how right it is to be of clear mind, of, of mindful awareness. After noting for a while, I have noticed that it's like the senses are separate and independent of one another. For example, when I note seeing, a feeling arises and is independent from the seeing. Is this correct? Kind of. I, I mean, I guess I, I I kind of shy away from saying yes too too uh, vehemently because I don't think you should be concerned too much about that. Like yes, kind of, but it's a bit complicated. Um, the the senses, yes, of course, are separate. You can't see and hear at the same time, though it it often seems like it's happening very quickly. But um, you know, feeling is is a bit different. Like. It's kind of complicated, but yes, feeling physical feeling, physical sensation is going to be independent. Um, but I, I wouldn't try to analyze it too closely. Most important, try to be aware of, try to be mindful of whatever is most uh, conspicuous, most obvious, most clear in your mind. Because again, it, it happens very quickly. It's hard to distinguish one moment from the next, at least in the beginning.
I spend a lot of time alone indoors, often with a family pet. I've begun practicing meditation and feel a sense of peace, but also of isolation. Should I be leaving the house more? If so, where to? Uh, we discourage, uh, dis I discourage you from using your feelings as a impetus to uh, change your behavior or change your state. The, 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 the problem is that our, our behaviors cultivate habits. So the habit you're describing is that of reacting to a feeling of isolation, for example, with an activity as a means of avoiding that or, or preventing that feeling, right? This is a common sort of archetype of activity. Uh, and what happens is when you engage in this repeatedly, it becomes habitual and it, it increases and your your reactivity increases. So you become increasingly averse to, for example, feelings of isolation. You become more prone to feelings of isolation. You, you rather than um, freeing yourself from it, you you give power to it because of your reactivity, because of your disliking of it because of the excitement that arises in the mind, it, it leaves a greater impression on you. So see, the power of mindfulness is that it reduces the impression that things have on you. You become more familiar with them. You become more um, disinterested or dis unexcited by them. If you focus on the feeling of isolation, take it as an object and just uh, observe it mindfully, it has less power over you because you give it less um, you create less excitement around it. There's less of an energy given to it. It's just like anything else in experience. Because of that, the mind becomes disinterested in it and, and also becomes more clearly aware of its true nature, that the feeling of isolation is stressful, is unpleasant. Because in fact, technically, the feeling of isolation isn't good or bad, but it, it it is described in that way due to a perception of aversion, of sadness, or disliking of the feeling of being alone. We, we, we use descriptions like feelings of isolation to describe a feeling of being alone plus a disliking of it. And it's that disliking that you're, you're feeding by describing it that way, by perceiving it that way, and by trying to avoid it, by trying to get rid of it. Uh, conversely, feelings of peace are often the sorts of things that you cultivate uh, attachment to, so liking of them. And that can go back and forth as a result of clinging to the peaceful feelings. You become more sensitive to feelings of isolation, to, to any sort of feeling that you don't like. And as a result, become like a yo-yo back or a pendulum back and forth, craving for the like, for the positive experiences, averse to the negative experiences and increasing the the cultivating increasing the reactivity the the clinging to the good ones and the aversion to the bad ones and so you're never really at peace even when you have good feelings because you're clinging to it and and uh, stressing over it leaving and trying to make it stay and so trying to ex extend it this is why good things, clinging to good things, is not is untenable because it actually reduces over time your your satisfaction as you become more clingy, more stressed, more tense, more needy of the good ones, and more uh, afraid and sensitive to the bad ones. I have a tendency of just reacting to questions asked of me. Any recommendations for catching myself and responding with more meaningful and honest answers when interacting with people? I mean, it's it's challenging. That's one of the more challenging aspects of mindful living because of the intensity and the abruptness of the experience and the need to 
cultivate or or uh, um, come up with uh, a response to someone's inquiry, to someone's in-your-face um, demand. So, so when someone comes with you a question, they're waiting for an answer. Or someone comes to you with anything, they're waiting for your response, waiting for your reaction, and so on. Uh, because of the immediacy of it, because of our uh, perception of our um, how how we how we seem to them our need for some kind of uh, positive reaction from them because of our uh, well clinging to self and the need for some kind of validation through other people's reactions to us. There's a lot of stress involved with interpersonal communication. So, I mean, generally in that sort of situation, we we, we recommend to train first. So, so spend time on your own cultivating and training in the, in the practice of mindfulness so that when you're taken off guard or when you're presented with a need to respond, that you'll be better um, as a result of the training, instead of trying to train on the spot. So, I mean, obviously, in any situation where you're asked a question and, and need to provide an answer, you can practice and should cultivate mindfulness. It's just, again, one of the harder situations because of all the um, triggers, all the great potential for reactivity. And, and so much preferable to spend time on your own. I mean, it's a good reason to spend time doing formal meditation on your own as a means of training your mind to be more uh, present, sharper, uh, more ready to uh, receive the, the stimulation of interpersonal communication in a more wholesome, profitable manner. Meditating outside has increased my motivation to meditate a lot since I got a meditation tent to avoid insects. Is it recommended to meditate outside in nature rather than indoors? And there are benefits to it. One of the issues, of course, is the need for a tent, which makes it hard to do walking meditation. So again, we recommend to do walking and sitting and walking outside in places where there are many mosquitoes or other sorts of insects can be a real challenge. So in, in fact, practically we do recommend um, meditating indoors uh, in, in certain cases for that reason, because you're just going to be overwhelmed by bugs if you try to do walking outside. But uh, if you're able to find a place to walk, to walk and sit outside without being bothered by insects, uh, maybe with a fan or something, then uh, yeah, nature can be nominally beneficial. I mean, it's it can be quite beneficial for a novice meditator. So yeah, usually it's fine. It's just over time you want to be clear that it can be a bit of a crutch, such that uh, you you start to. Well, you start to notice on a higher level your attachment to the peaceful feelings of being in nature and so on. You start to notice your negative feelings surrounding the stifling nature of being indoors, which, which to be clear, is simply attachment, is simply bias and partiality. And, and over time, you, you should be able to let go of that. So in some ways, eventually practicing in an environment that is less peaceful is more beneficial because it challenges you to be at peace in an environment that triggers unpeaceful feelings or, or, or react, reactionary feelings of, of aversion, stress, disliking, etc. To learn how those triggers arise, to learn how that triggering occurs, and to overcome it, to free yourself from, from it. So in general, rather than trying to find an environment that is wholly conducive to practice, try and free yourself from the reasons why other environments are less conducive. Because ultimately, environment shouldn't affect your state of mind. That's a huge part of what mindfulness is all about, freeing yourself from the reactivity of your surrounding, of the things that 
you experience in your, the world around you. I experience confusion while noting. For instance, if I think about walking somewhere, I might note walking instead of thinking. Any advice how to become more precise in the noting practice? That's just practice. I mean, those kind of mistakes are um, just beginner confusions, right? because of course your your mind is starting to try to appreciate the idea of of finding a name for your experience, but it's still jumbled up with concepts like the concept of walking that you are conceiving of in your mind, as as opposed to the thought of it, thinking about it. Um, it's, it's just a matter of practice. If you notice that another thing that it is is a recognition of non-self that you're not in control. You didn't ex- intend to note walking, perhaps, but your mind comes up with that, and you start to see that mm, this mind is not under my control. So even with the best of intentions, the mind is an organic uh, system, and so there's lots of lots of catalysts for very strange results like noting the wrong thing. And so cultivating patience and appreciation of the nature of the mind as being not you, not under your control, is, uh, is quite valuable. What should we do when we die? Should we just keep noting what's most prevalent for as long as possible? I mean, you should always be trying to cultivate mindfulness whether you're dying or not dying we're all dying so there's no nothing categorically about what you, different about what you're talking about because we're always on that path towards death even after we're just reborn we're already started on that path so there's nothing different the difference comes when the body breaks down and the mind um, starts there starts giving rise to experiences unrelated to the body, but they're still experiences. It's still the same process. It, it might be qualitatively quite different because you're no longer constrained by the body, and instead you're very much in tune with a lot of very often heavy mental, um, well, mental experiences, arisings, memories, that sort of thing. But they're still experiences. And so, yes, of course, you can still be mindful in the same way, still cultivate the same practice. Again, it's this is a, another one of those states that where it's going to be quite hard because death can be quite, of course, intense. And so it's far better to be prepared, having trained in the past, because you'll find it comes a lot easier and you're much less likely to be overwhelmed by the process of dying. Do you have any tips on how to establish a momentum of mindfulness? How can I be mindful in every moment without a break and not forgetting to be mindful? Is it possible to do this before becoming a Sotapanna? It's not really possible to do that before becoming an Arahant, let alone a Sotapanna. An Arahant is a much higher state. It's the state of, of complete freedom from defilement, freedom from ignorance or delusion. So even a sotapanna is still going to have unmindful moments. So I guess my advice would be not to be to not be so hard on yourself. Perhaps try not to have such great expectations or, or uh, aspirations. Rather try to roll with the punches, like in boxing. You're not going to be the only one getting the punches. In life is going to punch back. There's going to be lots of times where you're going to get hit. Ideally, right, you don't ever want to get hit as a boxer. The idea is to not get hit at all. But if a boxer came and said, how can I fight in a boxing match and never get hit? Do you have any tips? I would say, well, you you have to learn to take a hit, right? Even though that's bad advice because you don't ever want, you want to never get hit. It's not possible. It's kind of like that. You're going to be hit with a lot of bad things. Your, your mind is going to come up with a lot of negativity, a lot of unwholesomeness that is going to prevent completely you being mindful. So it's a process of rolling with the punches and making sure that at the end 
you're the one who gets the knockout, right? That, that wholesomeness prevails. It, it kind of runs amok. Like this, this analogy is not perfect. There's no ultimate knockout. Uh, I mean, maybe I guess there sort of is, right? When you become enlightened, but it's much more about um, learning to learning to take a punch and learning to to uh, dance with reality rather than fight with it. Don't expect for yourself to be perfect. Just try and and always cultivate what is right. And when you don't do that, well, the next moment you have a new opportunity. Try and stay in the present moment. Because another thing about your question is it kind of hinges on past and future. Something about anything that refers to every moment is always going to be dependent on what happened the last moment and what's happening the next moment. So that attitude is actually counterproductive. If you're focused on this moment, then you don't have to worry about where you're mindful in the last moment or the future moment. If you start to have that attitude, then you're much more capable of being mindful over the long term. Can mindfulness help with the tendency to go to extremes, such as with food, entertainment, exercise, even meditation? A swing between going overboard and obsessing or avoiding altogether. How can I find a balance? Well, I mean, the first step is not trying to curb the extremes but to appreciate them appreciate the unpredictable nature of the mind that the mind is unstable that you're not going to be to have a monotonous um, state of mind your quality of mind your mind is always going to be uh, unpredictable it, to some extent it works and it seems to work in cycles right there'll be cycles of anger cycles of, of addiction Cycles of delusion, they come and go. Um, and maybe cycles is a bit too too uh, optimistic. It's just a bit chaotic, really, and very organic. So there's lots of unpredictability and, and a lot of factors that affect things like mood and so on. So the idea is, at least in the beginning, to try and again roll with the punches, go with it, and adapt your practice. You have to adapt to whatever life throws at you. And mindfulness has the unique ability to be applicable to any experience, any situation. Once you understand the practice of mindfulness, you can, of course, apply it in any situation. But it's, it's a common mistake to expect reality to play along and to be familiar. And so to try to expect mindfulness practice to be the same every time. The practice itself won't, shouldn't be, and you shouldn't see it as being the same every time because your your attitude, your your personality changes over time. So if you're very very angry, say, or very very restless, that's just a different sort of practice. It's not a worse practice. It doesn't mean, boy, I wasn't able to practice, and I don't know why. It's that your state of mind changed, and you could apply you you try to apply mindfulness just the same as you do when when your mind is very peaceful and calm. What you should see over time, of course, is you'll be less reactive, reactive, less restless, less angry, less clingy. Of course, the extremes will start to go away, but try not to take that as a goal. Your goal should be to, again, adapt, and you'll find that much more fulfilling, much more productive than trying to uh, change your attitude so that it helps you be more mindful, helps you practice more. How can I want to practice more? Don't focus on that. When you don't want to practice, try and be mindful of that. Try and take that as an object of mindfulness. Why is art, like painting and writing, not allowed for monks or folks who wish to pursue the path? Writing is allowed, but not artistic writing like poetry or so on. I mean, the thing about painting and, and art is it has um, inevitable connections to central pleasure or, or sensuality in general. Some art is meant to evoke 
sadness or meant to evoke even anger perhaps or or whatever but none of it is um i mean i suppose even um well poetry and paint and and depiction can be used for religious purposes right uh, you can paint a picture of of one of the stories in the Tipitaka, which can be useful as a guide and is therefore generally wholesome. Uh, but the question is whether it also evokes some uh, attachment to its beauty, for example. Right? If you're drawing flowers and like if you draw a Buddha image, but it's very beautiful in this way or that way, there, there's the potential there. So there's the question: Is that art? If you depict a a Buddhist story with the purpose of reminding people of the Buddhist story. Well, if that's art, then generally speaking, that's okay. Could a monk do it? I don't know if there's any rules against dep such depictions. Uh, I tend to think probably not. Um, so if a monk did that, I wouldn't bat an eye. Now, now, the, it's it's a challenge because within that particular example, again, there's always going to run the trouble of some kind of uh, sensual attachment to the beauty of the picture. I, I don't think that's a huge issue, and I, I honestly wouldn't uh, worry too much about it. But other kinds of art, like if you're drawing a, a picture that someone is supposed to enjoy, then, well, that's just sensual enjoyment, right? Most art is most likely limited to sensual enjoyment. There, there of course, is murals and that sort of thing that depicts something like um, when we went to cambodia there was this we went to angkor wat and i honestly didn't really want to go to angkor wat wasn't that keen on it but it's a shock of course I, how could you not want to go to angkor wat everyone goes so we, we went and it was incredibly dis disappointing from my perspective like it was big of course but angkor wat isn't buddhist it isn't a buddhist place there are some buddha images there i think and there's lots of monks hanging out going there but it's a palace actually and so my point is there was um i think it was made of metal actually um someone had how do you pound it into the metal to make it like a, a picture right you make a a long story out of uh out of the metal and it was a story of a king, and it was this horrible story. It is not Buddhist by any means, and on and on and on. And the Cambodian monk was explaining this story, telling the story that the thing depicted. And there was a Tibetan monk with us at the time, and he 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 looked away at one point, and he said, "In other words, samsara." <laughs> and he walked away. And I thought, exactly, this guy knows where it's at. So. If it, if it's depicting if art is somehow depicting something Buddhist, then then I would be okay with it. I think now poetry is a little I think even harder to condemn because poetry is expression of ideas, and if your expression of ideas, I mean the Buddha used poetry, right? So we can't condemn it by any means. So again, it's the content and the the purpose. If poetry is meant to evoke sensual pleasure, then you've got a problem which much poetry does, right? If poetry is about uh, imagery and that sort of thing, hyperbole, um, evoking sort of certain feelings, unless those are positive, wholesome feelings. Much more to do with the... They're mediums, right? So both, I think, can, can potentially be used for, in positive ways. If self-identity is false then what is the entity that subjectively experiences life? What does I mean when we say, for example, I'm hungry, etc.? It doesn't mean anything. The entity that subjectively experiences life doesn't exist. I wouldn't dwell too much on these ideas. It's just intellectual activity that you won't get anywhere with. It doesn't make any sense logically because all of our logic is dependent on language, which... Well, not not all of it, but I mean, now much of our reasoning is dependent on our language, which assumes, uh, makes inaccurate assumptions about the existence of self. If you broke logic down, if you got to very strict formal logic, you would see that 
most likely that that self is 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 a unwarranted premise or axiom and so the idea that i am seeing or i am hungry or so on is is superfluous there was no reason to introduce that in the first place so it's just a mistake and it's a mistaken perception but but again rather than than focusing on that i would just try to practice mindfulness these are the sorts of things that you see from practice you don't practice in the sense of meditate on these ideas this is why m mindfulness practice is separated from vipassana uh, results vipassana is not the practice you do it's the result seeing clearly you don't practice seeing clearly things like non-self you practice being mindful reminding yourself this is this this is that so as you start to see what there is that which isn't becomes as equally clear so the self becomes equally clear as being non-existent that's the result not the practice so don't focus on these these logical ideas or logical arguments about is this false is this true and so on buddhism isn't so much about what is false and what is true like self-identity is false it's about seeing clearly and through actual observation you're clear about what is and what isn't rather than having views about this is true this is false how should i communicate about my meditation practice to my friends and family i'm afraid they might see me as weird well you should note the fear i mean i wouldn't worry too much about communicating uh, with others it's generally the kind of thing you can and probably should keep to yourself unless people ask you about it there's i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't emphasize the idea of communicating it to others unless they're interested i mean if it's just a matter of mentioning it to them try and work out your fear note the fear and and if someone asks you what are you doing sitting there you know, note afraid afraid and then have a simple answer i'm practicing mindfulness you you can you can some to some extent get around problematic confrontations by not using words like meditation right if you use mindfulness instead of meditation it's often more accepted if you use um if you if you avoid words like buddhism or that sort of thing right these are just ideas anyway none of it has any meaning you can even try and describe what you're doing if someone is asking, well, what does that mean? What is mindfulness? You say, well, I and try it and use words and explanations that are simple and non-threatening so that people don't think you're weird. You can describe why you're doing it. You know, it, it helps me clear my mind, helps me focus, helps me stay away from addiction and so on. And if, if people have a problem with that or think you're weird, then, well, you know the sort of people, you, you know that which people to stay away from yourself because anyone who doesn't appreciate such good things is, has got issues may not be the best sort of person. To... What does Buddhism suggest we do or not in regards to creation? For example, building a home in a video game such as Minecraft is this in line with the values, or do we lose touch with reality? Everyone, it appears the Venerable's internet connection uh, has fallen away, and we've come to the end of the hour. Thank you all for your questions. Wishing you all the best. We have peace, 
happiness and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. <laughs>